This is Startup to Shutdown, the podcast with Rhett and Paul, and we're on a journey to meet the aviators behind the stories, adventure together through the vast, exciting world of aviation, and to inspire and learn from one another as we fly. Good day, listeners, and welcome to episode two of Startup to Shutdown, the podcast. Today, we take a trip down memory lane with an airline pilot with almost 30,000 hours and a secret love affair with tail draggers and, in fact, anything that flies. Walter Waldeck, a senior training captain with SAA, also owns and runs Flight Training College on the beautiful garden route in George. He has a passion for aviation and training, and today he demonstrates his ability to walk the talk as he shares his dynamic career leading up to where he finds himself today. Alrighty, how's it, Walter? Thanks so much for joining us on uh, the first episode. Yeah, I think it's rather appropriate that it's that it's yourself, as since both Paul and I completed all our training with uh, with you at FTC. So thanks so much for for coming on board. It's a pleasure to be here, Rhett. It's, it's great to see you guys again. Well, we look forward to hearing some of your stories. Um, just to kick things off, uh, I think we'll start off with some rapid fire questions just to break the ice and give the audience a bit of an idea of uh, of who we're t- speaking to here today. It is. Go for it. Perfect. So let's start off with uh, how many years have you been flying and uh, what's your total time now? Okay. Well, actually, Red, when I was looking back on this one here, I thought it's, it's, it's quite crazy. It's, I've been flying since 1977, which is now 43 years ago, and I've got just over 29,000 hours. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah, hard, to, hard to fathom for someone of, of my standing, <laughs> but that's, yeah, it's a lot of experience. But we all started with one hour. Absolutely, we'll start somewhere. You, you foresee yourself hitting the 30,000, Walter? Um, yeah, I probably will, Paul, yeah, and no, no doubt, because it's uh, even though I'm sort of coming towards the end of my airline career, um, I will continue, obviously, uh, as a flying instructor and as an examiner as well. So, yeah, I actually I see myself getting past 30,000. Brilliant. Thanks, Walter. And for the second question, what is your favorite aircraft that you've ever flown? That's a, there's a couple of those, Rhett. You know, on, on the airliner side and, and, the, and the big heavy jet side, uh, the Boeing 747-400, that was, that was actually one of the best aircraft I've ever flown. Um, but that wasn't the only one. The, the other, my current favorite right now is the Airbus A350, which I'm flying, and uh, that's a tremendous Boeing aircraft. It's uh, incredibly well designed and uh, quite a lot of fun to fly, even though it's heavily automated, obviously. But uh, yeah. it's, uh, the, the Airbus did a great job designing that airplane. But of, of the other large aircraft, the C-130 Hercules, the, uh, well, the L-100, which we, we call them at Safair, uh, I had a lot of fun on those airplanes as well. Very uh, delightful airplane to fly and very capable airplane. But then uh, when it comes to other aircraft, uh, the corporate or the corporate airplanes, probably the nicest one, I, I, well, the one I enjoyed the most was the Lear 24. Not a terribly sophisticated airplane, but it, uh, it had tremendous performance and uh, I had a lot of fun on that aircraft. Then as far as... Um, Military aircraft are concerned now that, uh, just I must elaborate here, I, I was never a military uh, pilot. I just spent my two years national service there, but I got to fly a lot of military aircraft. And, uh, and one of the aircraft that I did eventually get to fly uh, was, a, was a Cheetah D with a friend of mine, yes. um, Yoni Scott. And uh, that, that, that was a tremendous aircraft yeah. uh, to fly. And in fact, I wrote an article for the Safety Magazine about that, uh, that experience. But when it comes to civilian aircraft, um, I would have to say the tail draggers, all of the tail draggers are my favorite, yeah. uh, particularly the, the Pit Special, um, the Extra 300, great airplane. And uh, I love the Super Cub. Uh, but basically, anything that's got a tail wheel, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to climb into. In fact, I'll, that's the airplane I look for when I really want to go and have a lot of fun, is a tail dragger. Walter, that's an incredible answer there. And uh, you know, speaking to all the dreamers, 
out there, I'm sure, with uh, some of those answers. I think we might have underestimated that question with your 30,000 hours almost now. I'm sure you've got plenty. Uh, do you have any idea for interest sake how many different types you have, Flynn? Uh, well, on, on the license, it's about 120 types, but um, those, are, those are types that I'm rated on. But of types that I'm not rated on, if you can include all of those, probably about 190-odd different types of aircraft yeah. that I have flown, obviously with, uh, with other pilots or instructors. Yes, that's incredible. You learn from, you learn from all of these aeroplanes. I think it's important that pilots fly as many types as possible. Don't you think these days with the regulations as they are, and it's become more difficult to fly as many types as easily? Well, in a sense, yes. And in fact, I find not, not so much the regulations that do it, but funny enough, I find a lot of, a lot of pilots are not really that interested in flying different aeroplanes. Um, I found that through the flying school as well, in fact, uh, is that guys tend to want to sit with one aircraft the whole time, um, you know, even after they've got their, their PPLs or the commercial licenses. And uh, it's very seldom that you see a guy who would want to go and fly, for instance, a glider, a motorized glider, or go and do aerobatics or go and fly tail drags. It's not, it's not often that you see that. Um, these days, you, you find the guys are more professionally orientated in that they, they, they learn to fly for a purpose in that they want to become airline pilots, but they don't really seem to want to enjoy the process as much as what they're used to. And that, that to me is quite sad, actually, because... Um, you know, there's so much to enjoy on the, on the, on the route to becoming an airline pilot. Yeah, and I agree. We do notice it as Yeah, we do notice it a bit as well because when we get uh, guys in an in in airline environment, uh, in a simulator, um, you know, when we train these guys on Airbus and Boeings and stuff, you can often see that um, the guy has very little experience on any other type of light aircraft than what he learned to fly on. Yeah, we absolutely agree with you 100% uh, that guys have lost that yearning to fly um, and it has become yeah. just a career and a lot of guys once they get in the airline and that's the pinnacle when they get to the airline now we've reached the pinnacle now what and and they almost lost out on an entire uh, couple of chapters in their book um, if they move too quickly yeah. to the airline so that's a very good way of putting it actually because if you look at your life as a, as a book um, you, you know, by, by, by fast-tracking your life into the airlines, you are. You're missing a lot of chapters. The flights I remember the most are, not, funny enough, not the airline flights, not all of them. Um, a lot of the flights that I remember are the, are the days when I was doing charts and the days that I was actually flying uh, for a SAFI on C-130s uh, or l and And uh, it, it, it's a, a lot of the, my most memorable flying actually happened outside of an airline environment, incredibly. It was, it was very enjoyable, you know, and very challenging in a yep. different sort of way to the airlines. Yeah, yeah I think challenging and u unique, you know, something completely different from, I suppose, the mundane that you yes. become so accustomed to and so used to. Yeah, you know, airline flying is a bit different in, in that, look, it's very precise. And, and, and to become an airline pilot, you need a very wide skill set of things. It's not just the flying. It's not just the polling, the, 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 the hand-eye coordination and actually physically flying the aircraft. You need a, a, a very large skill set, uh, and by that I'm talking about managing aircraft systems. So your, your knowledge of the aircraft has got to be a, a very, very uh, in-depth and very knowledgeable on that particular aircraft that you yeah. fly. You know, and as far as managing people is concerned, I mean, you know, as an airline pilot, you manage your, your crew. And that, believe it or not, can become quite complex, I can tell you. Uh, yeah. You can fly with some really cool guys sometimes, you know, and, and that, that really becomes quite challenging. And then, of course, uh, the airline flying, as far as the weather is concerned, oh, that's, that's, 
that's probably the most challenging of the lot. It's, you know, when you go from a, a climate here in, in Southern Africa and you end up in New York, an American winter in a snow blizzard, you know, it's, uh, there are certain challenges there. And, you know, when guys come to me and they tell me, oh, but isn't airline flying, isn't it boring? I said, anything but. Yeah. We work quite hard to make it boring, actually, because it's, <laughs> it can get incredibly exciting very quickly just when you don't want it to be. You know, it's, uh, it can be an extremely challenging environment, that's for sure. Hey, that's great. Thanks, Walter. Um, so, <laughs> rapid fire question number three. Yeah, rapid fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, do you have any book suggestions, Walter? Or if if not a book, perhaps a movie or a song that sort of inspires you? Or um, Rhett, I think, I don't know if you guys have ever read uh, Fate is the Hunter by Ernest no, Gann. He was an airline pilot himself back in the, uh, in the 40s, uh, but he wrote a book, and this book called Fate is a Hunter about his career and uh, also about the people that he flew with. And uh, it, it's, it's got so many truths in that book that are applicable to this day. It gives you a very good idea of where flying was and where it's come to now and, and how similar in certain ways it still is. That is a book that everybody should read. No, great. The other book that's actually pretty good that uh, I'm sure the listeners would enjoy is uh, a book called uh, Open Cockpit Over Africa. And uh, Victor actually, um, he wrote a book about his adventures. And uh, it's primarily about his attempt to break a world record flying a gypsy moth from Cape Town to London. This is back in 1933. And um, he, he failed an attempt. And uh, he got to London eventually, but of course he was way behind the record. So he bought another aircraft and attempted the southbound route, and that didn't work either. But it was such an adventure that he actually wrote a book about it, and that's definitely well worth reading as well. That's incredible. Yeah, no, I love those adventure ones, especially of, you know, back in the day when you spoke about how flying used to be and, uh, you know, almost gives you that nostalgic feeling about it. Obviously, yeah. it has come a long way. But uh, final one here, Walter, before we uh, continue with the, the interview questions, any advice to your younger self? That is a very good question, Rhett. And in fact, I've actually spent a bit of time thinking about that. That's, uh, yes, I do have some advice on that one. If, if I could go back in time and give myself any advice back then when I was a youngster. Um, first thing would be to study harder. I wasn't, I wasn't great at school, particularly in maths, and I really didn't spend that, that, that much time studying, which I actually should have because it became a bit of a problem later on. And the other story would be to actually to, uh, to play more sport. Uh, I wish okay. I'd played more sport at school. There's a, there's a great benefit to sport, um, not only the fitness side but the, the, the social side as well. Um, so those two things alone would be uh, you know, study harder, particularly math, science, and geography, play more sport, and don't waste time. You know, I, I was also a bit of a time waster when I was at school. I think that's great, great advice, and it definitely applies to my life as well, I'm sure, for you too, Paul. One thing I have found is that uh, there are a couple of friends I have who also didn't do very well at school. You've heard that old uh, quote about uh, the teacher saying, stop staring out the window. No one's ever going to pay you for staring out of a window. <laughs> and uh, the pilot says, oh, I showed her, didn't I? And that's my encouragement as well, is that there are uh, kids who don't shape so well at school in the schooling system who can still do very well mm. in aviation. Oh, yes. But um, for me, uh, studying never stops. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. You know, the, the big thing as well is also learn how to study. You know, there's a lot of kids that actually go through the schooling system 
and they never really learn how to study. And, and I was one of those. You know, it's, uh, if you learn the proper methodology of learning how to study, it'll make your life a lot easier. Yeah. Um, so, Walter, yeah, just we can see, obviously, you've got a very dynamic background in aviation. Uh, you're an airline pilot with close on 30,000 hours. You've been uh, running a really successful school. Both Rhett and I can testify to that. But the question I'd like to ask is, with all of that experience, where did it all start? Uh, in, in my case, uh, my earliest sort of recollections uh, of where I, got, where I became interested in aviation was when my grandparents took me to an air show at uh, Watercliffe Air Force Base back in 1966. And that, that happened to be the time that the, uh, the Mirage 3 CZs came into, uh, into the Air Force. And uh, even at a young, as a young age, then I was six years old, I, I was completely smitten with, these, the, the, with the Mirage. And that's, uh, that's actually one aircraft I always wanted to fly. From there, um, uh, my father was an aviation enthusiast as well. He, he, had, a, he had a PPL. He was a journalist, and his, his great interests were aviation and, and nature conservation. So uh, we kind of got interested in the aviation side, my brother more so on the, on the conservation side. At one stage, my father had Wings Over Africa, that flying magazine. So I used to help him with that because at that stage I was about 16, and I helped him with the, with the photography side and a you know, couple of things on the magazine. And uh, that nourished my sort of interest in aviation. And when you started, where did you see yourself going? Did you see yourself ultimately ending up in the airline? At that stage, no. At, uh, although I knew I wanted to become an airline pilot at some stage, my, my primary goal was actually to become a fighter pilot. My, my ambition was to go and fly those Mirages. So the, the, initially I wanted to become a military pilot, specifically uh, a fighter pilot on Mirages. But um, th that wasn't to be because, well, for a couple of reasons, but one of them was that I was severely short-sighted. And, uh, of course, when I did eventually join the Air Force um, for my two years national service, I did go for pilot selection, and I did uh, the medical, and, of course, I failed the, the medical dismally. That's when my civilian career started. So, uh, you know, by that stage, I already had a PPL. I did my PPL at school, in fact, while I, while I slid school in, in matric. That was a mistake, by the way. And, in fact, uh, a lot of people ask me, isn't it a good idea that when the kids are young, you know, let them start flying early? Um, to be honest, it's not such a good idea because I found through my own life that once I started learning to fly when I was still at school, the emphasis became on aviation, not in school and not in sport. And I missed out a lot because of that. So when my own two sons started flying, I allowed them to go solo when they were still at school. But I said, once you've gone solo, now the flying stops. You've, you've had a taste of it. I want you to get good marks at school and I want you to play sport because you know what's waiting for you when you finish. It's, it's, it's a goal to work towards. You mentioned that obviously military would have been the route you would have chosen. It's not the route that chose you, but there are so many positive spin-offs from that. And would you oh, have yes. been as involved in general aviation as you've been? Would you have been a, a flight instructor? Would you have owned the flight school had your original plan worked out? Probably not. Probably not. Um, that's the amazing thing about it because I think the big turning point was becoming an instructor. I, I didn't really enjoy it in the beginning. Um, I, I was a bit uh, self-conscious and I was a bit shy and it, it, didn't, it didn't come nat naturally to me at all. But, but it was actually the best thing I've ever done. And that's uh, a, lo a lot of guys sometimes become an instructor to get, up, to get the experience, but then they let the rating uh, lapse and they never instruct again. In my case, I actually I, I quite enjoyed it. So I, I maintained it and uh, kept current on it. And uh, 
through all the years, maintained a, a, an, uh, an interest in general aviation itself, mainly because I enjoyed it. And it was even better just to teach it. You know? And, and, and uh, you guys will know as well that when you teach something, you, you get to know the subject so much more than if you didn't. Um, Walter, um, I think every pilot hits a place in their career where their confidence wanes because of a proficiency check that didn't go well or because of uh, an exam they failed or maybe an interview that they thought would go better than it did. Um, have you got any experiences like that where you did plateau and you had to work extra hard to get through it? And, and what was the mental battle that you had to fight? Um, Paul, on, on, on that score, I've, I've been quite lucky. I haven't plateaued, not, not that it's... Not that it's uh, worth remarking about. There was one interesting thing that did happen to me, though. To give you a bit of uh, a background, when I was learning to fly, um, my very first flying hour was paid for by a guy called Kerry Swift. And uh, he was a colleague of my father's and very close to the family. And uh, he paid for my very first flying hour on the condition that once I had my PPL, he and his wife would be my first passengers. And uh, back in those days, by the way, uh, an hour of flying was 22 rand an hour. Can you believe this? Unbelievable. My dad freaked out about that because when he learned to fly, it was only five rand an hour. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but anyway, so Kerry, uh, he paid for my very first flying hour. And I finished my PPL. It took me about a year to finish my PPL. And I then made an arrangement with Kerry and his wife, Cheryl, to come and fly with me at Lanceria. And while I was filling out the, the, the flight folio, a, a Cessna 150 Aerobat <clears throat> did a low, high-speed pass down the runway and a very steep pull-up. Of course, he then joins onto a, a right-hand diamond for runway 06. And this time, he comes over the apron at about 50 feet, right in front of, of, of the terminal where we were standing, and he did a low-level roll. Jeez. And he messed the roll up, and he, he ended up crashing right there in front of us. It was the most surreal experience that I've ever had. Um, so he crashes in front of us. Everything goes deadly quiet. And, of course, uh, Ron Toy was the, uh, the airport manager. He ran out and, and pulled uh, the pilot out. And uh, anyway, so uh, Kerry and Cheryl and myself, we decided, no, there's no ways that we want to fly on a day like that, you know, after, after, after witnessing an event like that. And while we were just sort of packing up there and uh, one of the guys came into, into the flight school and he was carrying this, this, uh, this NAC uh, flying jacket and it, it, it had a whole lot of blood on it. And then I realized that, you know, it, it, it was somebody that we knew. And it, uh, I said to the guy, well, the, who was it? And it happened to be Pat Ehlers. And Pat Ehlers was one of my instructors. So I, I just witnessed Pat Ehlers get himself right there in front of me. So that shook me to the core. To, to witness my own instructor actually kill himself right in front of me. And uh, it, it took me a long time to, to recover from that experience. And, in fact, it took me a long time to become comfortable with aerobatics, which was primarily because of, that, uh, of witnessing that event. So that's the one event that actually does stick out in my mind. And, and funny enough, to this day, I still owe Kerry and Cheryl that flight. They've never flown with me. So uh, the idea is that once I, I finally give this all up, I'll, I'll get a hold of Kerry and Cheryl and say, listen, I, I still owe you guys a flight. Right. You know? <laughs> got to, we still got to finish this off properly. <laughs> but that's about the only thing I think, Paul, that's, uh, that was where I could say it, it had a dramatic effect. I think the other things that did have effects during your life, I mean, I'm just thinking about those articles that I wrote for the Aviation Safety Magazine, you know, the time that I got lost in a 172 over Okavongo swamps in the middle of the night. I mean, that's, that's yes. And low on fuel as well. 
that that was a pretty dramatic event that I wouldn't say that plateaued me, but it certainly it shook me basically because I came so close to crashing that night. I'm sure you've read that article. It's on uh, the FTC website. But um, it, it was some of those events that actually they they definitely had an effect on my life. Well, another one, another big event was uh, picking up severe icing in a, in a Cessna 421. So 421 was the first tech, well, first pressurized aircraft I flew. This sort of a high altitude, 18 to 20,000 feet, and I picked up this ice, but it, it was so severe that I felt the aircraft stalling. And I realized that I could not actually continue. I was going to stall this aircraft and, uh, and you know, pros- with possibly disastrous consequences. So, um, yeah, fortunately, I survived that one. Um, th- there's another event that I had with a, a Beechcraft Duchess um, that was flying from P to, uh, to Bloemfontein at night in severe weather, picking up St. Elmo's fire, icing as well, scared the living daylights out of myself. And, and funny enough, that, that Duchess, that, that event happened around about 1981. That Duchess today, I actually own. It's actually part of the fleet at, at Flight Training College. Oh wow! And it's quite something to own that that very airplane. That was was really quite a lesson for me in weather, you know. So, uh, <laughs> but those, those are a couple of events that really made a they made an impact on my life. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, those are the stories that uh, we we're looking forward to hearing from so many people because we've all got those stories. And uh, you mentioned yes. four twenty one, um, the first airplane I flew. Uh, commercially was a 402 at 250 hours as pilot in command alone on this 402 uh, in some pretty marginal weather sometimes. And at the time you're nervous, but you're actually not realizing exactly how deep you're in uh, until also I flew back from the Okavango and I got caught in a severe thunderstorm and I'm not sure who it was. It may even have been you that uh, told me if ever I find myself in a thunderstorm, just carry on, don't turn around. And, um, and I, it was the first time where I was properly on instruments and it was turbulent and it was dark. And uh, I thought that mm. day, this is it. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, these are the lessons we learned uh, the hard way. But out of interest, yeah. your 421 with icing, what did you do to get out of that situation? I, I had to descend. I had to descend, and uh, I was flying right over the uh, over the mountains over Lesotho, and uh, I got down to about I think it was about fourteen, fifteen thousand feet when it's uh, when the ice started coming out and coming off the airplane. And it was actually quite amazing when the ice started coming off. It made an incredible sound. I mean, it's uh, as it broke off, it hit the tailplane, and then the ice that was on the props, the, the, the props threw the ice off onto the fuselage, and it was like a gunshot. It really was really quite uh, quite disturbing. It wasn't pleasant at all. But um, I'm sure you can attest as well that the big the big challenge in this business is actually is handling weather. You know, and and, and thunderstorms are particularly dangerous. And uh, that's why, as long as you've got a you, you need to have a proper decent radar when you when you start going around thunderstorms. And you know the the, the stuff that the, well, the stupid stuff I did in those days uh, in light aircraft. Oh my! I, I, I shudder. I'm, I'm embarrassed actually to even talk about it some of this stuff because I know guys that never survived the kind of things that I actually uh, I experienced. And uh, in fact, I must just tell you another story here. There was a, there was a, a Beechcraft Bonanza that we used to fly on freight um, from Lanceria to Durban. And I needed the hours. So I said to my dad, look, you know, I'm going to fly this bloody freight run. It was my first freight run on, on this Bonanza. So my dad said, do not fly these airplanes, a single engine airplane at night. Do, do not do that. And I said, but dad, you know, I kind of, I, I, I need the experience. So 
I went ahead and did it anyway. So I do this flight down to uh, to Durban. I, I wait the whole day, and about eight half past eight at night, I then fly the Bonanza back to Lanseria. And on the way back to Lanseria, now these airplanes are very basic airplanes. It's got no weather radar. It's got no storm scope. And I get into the most horrendous bloody weather, and uh, it it absolutely terrified me. It was it was a, it was a shocking a shocking uh, experience. It really was. And um, anyway, I eventually landed uh, at Lanseria. And uh, I drove home probably about top past 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I remember getting home and my dad was sitting in the pub in the house and he was completely plastered. And uh, that night he thought he'd lost me. He actually thought I'd, I'd killed myself that night. And I, w- when I stepped into the pub and I said, Dad, I, will, I promise you I'll never, ever do that again. And I never did. I never did that again. And so help me a month later, an ex-Air Force helicopter pilot who just left the Air Force, he was on uh, Pumas, and he needed fixed wing time to kickstart his, uh, his, his civilian career. He took that job, and on his very first flight, he flies a Bonanza down, comes back, and on the way back, hit the same kind of weather, and he had an instrument failure, and he put the airplane into the ground, and he, he killed himself. And I'll, I'll never forget that. I mean, it's just the most horrendous stuff. You know, when you think back on life and just how, how fortunate one has been, certainly that I've been, to survive the kind of, events that I have. It's, 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 it's funny, the, the stuff that I survived back then with very few hours, I would never, ever attempt to do today. Never. Yeah. It's, it's just too terrible. But you often do these things because you don't know what's waiting for you. You know, you, you, you fly out of ignorance and out of luck. You're just bloody lucky to survive. Well, exactly what you're saying about uh, sometimes it's ignorance, not really being aware of the situation you're putting yourself in in the first place. And then yep. second of all, the structure um, that aviation is for guys to build their hours. Uh, they're young. They've got the least experience they'll ever have. And they're flying the most uh, rudimentary aircraft with the least mm. amount of sophistication and technology to help them. It's a bizarre yep. situation. You know, probably the busiest cockpit I've ever flown is That's probably 402. Because you're a single crew, you don't have the assistance of another crew member, you don't have the automation, you don't have all the audible and visual warnings. So you've got the least experience flying the aircraft that is most likely to kill you. And it's, it's something yeah. uh, that I think a lot of guys can testify to. It's funny, it's in, in those kind of aircraft that the, the, the workload is tremendously high. And it's at a point where your experience level is actually quite low. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's quite something, you know. If you survive those days, you're pretty much you're pretty much going to make it anyway. You know, it's Absolutely. quite a challenge. It's, it certainly it certainly gets adrenaline going, and it certainly it teaches you quite a bit about life. That's for sure. And I don't know if there's any way of changing that structure uh, because at the end of the day, those are the pilots that are available to fly those aircraft. So I think that's where sort of mitigating that risk as best as possible and giving them the support that you can give them, supervision. You know, in the in the uh, the early days um, is, yes. is the, the best we can do. This is where I think the Air Force system is actually very good. With the Air Force system, you went through wings. Wings course is about 220 odd hours. You then got posted out to the squadrons. You accumulated quite a lot of experience before you then went back as an instructor. So the structure of the Air Force was a lot better than the civilian structure. Whereas with the civilian guys, I mean, basically, we, we came straight off uh, commercial licenses, went straight on as instructors. What did we know about flying? It's incredible. I mean, it's, uh, that's where the Air Force system was better. But unfortunately, the civilian system can't work the same way. 
That's just the unfortunate thing about it. Look, I think it's a lot safer today in, in many ways than what it was back then. I think the airplanes these days is mostly turbines. So I think being mostly turbines, I think is, it's, it's mostly two crew operation as well. So I think it's a bit safer than what it was then, really. Obviously, the law has changed, and also a lot of uh, your AOCs will insist on a two crew structure, even if it's not a multi crew certified aircraft, which I think is, uh, is highly commendable. Um, there's availability of pilots out there who want to fly. It's a good exactly. platform, uh, it's a good opportunity, and of course, it makes it safer. Your family is an interesting family because it's your brother and your, your two sons, everyone flies. Yeah. As I told you, my, my, my father, uh, he had a PPL. He was just a weekend warrior. He, uh, uh, he just flew for the love of it. But uh, my brother, Warren, you know, uh, Warren, funny enough, uh, he, he and I learned to fly together, but he, he gave it up in favor of becoming a game ranger. Uh, he was at Molo Molo for many years, and then he went to Marion Island, and uh, eventually ended up at the Tull Parks Board. And uh, with, with what was happening there, it, it, it became apparent that there was no, not much of a future there. So he then uh, came back into aviation at about the age of 42 and reactivated his commercial license, became a flying instructor. He was, he was uh, one of our instructors at Flight Training College for a number of years. And then he, he uh, obviously did his ATP and he got himself a job as a, as a contract pilot. And uh, back in those days, it was with a company called Belmoral. And then he flew for various different companies, uh, NAC, Salenta, and he's now actually with Airtech. His, uh, Warren is now 58 years, 59 years old, and he's still flying for Airtech on a King Air 1900. And uh, he flies five weeks on, five weeks off. And at present, he's actually in Tunisia. Obviously, with the COVID, he's been stuck there for two months. But um, on the five weeks that he's off, he actually lives in China. He's, his wife and his daughter are school teachers there. He was never really interested in the airline business. He's uh, Warren's more uh, a gentleman adventurer, and he's had some serious adventures. He really has, and a uh, very interesting uh, uh, life that he's had. It's very different from my my own, obviously. But anyway, uh, he's got a son, Gareth, and Gareth flies with you there at Airlink, the first officer on the uh, E190. And then on my side, I've got two sons, uh, Jason, who you know very well, and Warwick. Uh, Jason actually flies for Cathay Pacific now. He's actually been with Cathay for about. He must be close on three years now. He's a, he's a third pilot on the Boeing 777. And uh, his wife, Laura, is a school teacher in, in Hong Kong. That's where they're based. And then Warwick, uh, my youngest son, he's, uh, he's just got his command on the E-190 at, at Airlink. And, uh, of course, they're sitting at lo- in lockdown in Somerset West at the moment. But all three boys came through the flight school and then uh, became flying instructors, picked up the experience then went and did survey flying. Um, I'm sure you remember, Warwick did the most hectic survey flying, really low-level survey flying up uh, in Ghana and northern Mozambique. And Jason did survey flying in a Rockwell 690, flying high altitude, uh, taking uh, photographs for surveys, for, for mapping. And uh, you know, from that, they, they got enough experience to then move on. It's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we are looking at is every person has his own story and has taken his own route in aviation. And uh, it's so cool to see that within one family, there are so many routes and a, a different scope within aviation. I think that's where we want to encourage people as well. Uh, like myself, uh, your brother started at 42. I started at 35. We've actually got very similar lives. I came out of conservation too. And uh, it's never too late. If you're sitting wondering, you've waited too long to go into aviation, uh, I beg to differ. I think you can go into aviation at any stage. 
Yeah, there, there's so many different things that you can do in aviation. It doesn't have to be airliner. It doesn't have to be military. It can be any, anything you want it to be. You know, if I look at all my colleagues in the airline, we've all come different paths to to get to an airline career. The guys have all got fantastic stories to tell. I mean, it's that's one of the nice things about flying in the airline that we go overseas and we we spend time in, in each other's company and have a couple of beers and they sit around the dinner table and these stories come out. And there are the most amazing stories about guys in aviation. It's quite incredible. Pilots are one big family, and not just in South Africa, the whole worldwide. It's, it's a wonderful career, a wonderful industry to be in. You know, it's, um, these are people that are even closer than friends. You know, they, they're an extended family, really. Absolutely, Walter. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think every one of us has a story of how somebody in this aviation family has helped us along and given us a foot up in our careers. And you've got a great story to tell of how your career started. Uh, can you share that with us? When, when I started my, my commercial career in aviation, I'd, I'd finished national service uh, in 81. Uh, obviously needed a job. And, you know, getting a job with 200 hours and, and a brand new instructor is rating quite difficult. And I mentioned that my father had um, Wings Over Africa. And Wings Over Africa, at, at one stage, he, he commissioned a couple of paintings from a guy called Ron Belling, a very well-known aviation artist. And these paintings were on the cover of Wings Over Africa. And to this day, we've still got a couple of these paintings that are still in our, in our family collection. But one of these paintings happened to be of a glider that was owned by a guy called Mike von Ginkel. Now, Mike, Mike von Ginkel was um, the owner, one of the owners of Avex Air. And uh, anyway, when I finished national service, I, I'd actually met up with Mike von Ginkel. And Mike said to me, listen, your dad had this painting of a glider, which I owned. I would like to actually buy the painting. So I said, yeah, sure, Mike. As soon as I'm finished national service, I'll come up to, to Jadwig and I'll see you. So six months later, I ended up at, uh, at Grand Central and I went and I saw Mike. And I had the painting with me. And I said, Mike, listen, I'm going to make a deal with you. I need a job, and you need the painting of the glider. So that's, that's actually how I got my job. I, it's, uh, I gave Mike the, uh, the, the painting of the glider, and uh, he very kindly actually gave me a job as a flying instructor. And uh, I'm sure you would have employed me anyway, but, I mean, it was just quite a nice, uh, quite a nice thing to, Brilliant. to go through. And I'll tell you, where, uh, it'll become relevant a little bit later uh, in the show. Anyway, so uh, I, I joined AVEX Air, flew charter. That's where I really had a lot of fun, being charter in all kinds of different airplanes. But from there, I went on to Magnum Airlines, flying the, uh, the Merlin, the Metroliner. And from there to Comair uh, on the F-27, the Friendship. And from there to Air Botswana. And uh, that was also flying uh, the, the Fokker Friendship as well. And uh, after that, I then applied for Safair. And Safair was actually one of the most difficult places to get into because um, they interviewed me. But because I had a photograph in my license of, of myself wearing glasses, the moment that I, that I walked into the interview, they had a look at the license, saw that I actually wore glasses, and without even asking me to, to sit down, they said, sorry, we don't take guys with glasses. So I walked out of there. And uh, anyway, so that was the end of, end of that job. But uh, funny enough, I got to know those guys quite well. And eventually they were actually very kind to me and they kind of made an exception and I eventually got into Safair and I was flying this, uh, the L100 uh, Lockheed Hercules there and that was, that was a great time. Uh, we were a great company. Uh, we did some tremendous flying in, this, in, in, in the, Lockheed, uh, the Lockheed Hercules. 
And then from there, of course, um, the, the next break came in 1987 where uh, I applied for SAA. Now, SAA hadn't taken a single pilot between 1981 and 1987. For six years, I didn't take a single pilot. Now, that, funny enough, ruined a couple of careers because there were certain guys that had applied in 1981 who were around about 30, 31, 32, and you didn't get into SAA. But then years later, when the next intake started in 1987, they were then over the age of 35. Now, back in those days, 35 was the cutoff. We don't have it anymore. There is no age limit now. So their, their, their career paths took a completely different turn. And that was quite interesting to see some of my colleagues that's uh, – Obviously, couldn't become SAA pass and then went to other companies. But anyway, so I, I was very fortunate to, fortunate to get into the first intake uh, in October 87. And then from there, uh, obviously, I was a, uh, a third pilot in 747s for a couple of months, then a co-pilot on the, on the uh, Airbus A300. And then from there on to, uh, back onto 747s as a co-pilot, 767s for a short time, and then onto the 740, uh, 747 400s. And then uh, from there, for my first command on Boeing 737s and then the A330, A340, and eventually onto the A350, which I've only been flying for a couple of months. Walter, what is your life at the moment? Uh, being with SAA, you've had a, a couple of interesting months since December and now COVID. And so where are you at the moment and where do you see yourself going from here? Where this whole thing becomes quite interesting because now I'm kind of heading towards the end of my, my airline career. I've turned 60 and even though we've got a retirement age of 63 uh, at the age of 60 I'm probably going to be retired after this COVID thing because uh, COVID obviously has has affected the airline industry worldwide to the point that it's, it's decimated the, the airline industry really has but um, so I'm looking at the, the prospect of taking uh, an early retirement and that's going to happen pretty shortly I think but um, yeah so COVID has affected us in a big way as you know but one of the good things about it I must tell you as bad as it seems right now uh, I've encouraged a lot of the students. This is your opportunity for the students now to actually study and get all the licenses behind them, get all the get all the subjects behind them. You know, often guy, a guy will get a commercial license, but he'll neglect to finish off the ATP. And some guys take years before they finish uh, an airline pilot license. Now's the time to actually do it. Because one day when we come out of this COVID experience, and if they've got the licenses, they've got the experience, they've written the subjects, they will, they will eventually actually be in the right place at the right time because there's a lot of, of the older guys like myself that are retiring, and not just in South Africa, right around the world. And uh, eventually when these airlines do recover, there will be a place for the, you know, for the students of today, no doubt about it. What is the most fundamental lesson that you can teach a student? Sure, that's a good one. Um, there's, there's some stuff that you can't teach a guy. You know, I guess you can develop a passion, you, you've got to want to do this. You've got to, you've got to have a passion for this. Uh, anything that you do in life, you've got to have a passion for. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I do on a, on, on a test is towards the end of the test, I give my students a couple of circuits where I, I blank out the airspeed indicator and the altimeter. And it forces the student to actually learn to fly or to, or to get comfortable with flying an aircraft just on the aircraft's attitude. And you, you'd be amazed how it sounds, it sounds like such a fundamental thing, but it's something that most or many students do not ever develop the ability to do. So there's certain little clues that, very important clues that you get from flying attitude. And I find this often when I test a guy on a commercial general flying uh, test, um, that if I actually 
blank off the airspeed indicator in the altimeter. And I'll just give them a couple of circuits, just flying purely by attitude. It gives them so much confidence. Because up until that point, they've been fixated on this bloody airspeed indicator and the altimeter, but they yeah. haven't concerned themselves with anything else with flying the airplane. Yeah. And that's another reason why gliding is Because gliding, there is no power. There is, yeah. no, there is no engine. Okay, You have to fly the aircraft by attitude. Most of, and you don't even, you, most of the flying in a glider, you do not even look inside. You're actually looking outside. You're flying the aircraft entirely by attitude. And that is, that is definitely a skill that's... Um, that the modern students of today have have actually lost. Yeah, absolutely. Fundamentals. Fundamentals. Going back to what you were saying about you can't imagine yourself doing anything else. I think there are a lot of pilots in that boat at the moment. Even if there are opportunities for them in other industries, in other careers, they just can't see or imagine themselves doing anything else. What would your advice to them be? to just keep them hopeful and inspired and possibly forging forward to a time where maybe they can come back to the flight deck? Yeah. No, I must admit these are extraordinary times. My, my biggest point of advice right now is, is primarily it's going to be a stressful time. There's no doubt about it. It's going to be stressful for a lot of guys. I see it with the co-pilots at, at SAA. You know, a lot of these guys have got bonds. They've got kids at schools. They've got heavy expenses. Um, so the stress is going to be high. Um, the, the, one way to maybe try and help alleviate the stress is control your costs as much as possible. You know, whatever is not absolutely essential, start cutting down on because the financial stress is a very real stress and it's a very unpleasant stress. And it puts stress not only, not only on you personally, but on your marriage, on your family, on your kids. It can and it has proved in the past to be absolutely devastating. So... That, that is a tough one. So keep your costs to an absolute, absolute minimum. And then the other thing I would say is read. Read as much as you can, particularly because you will come back into aviation. There's no doubt about it. It's, it's going to take a bit of time, no doubt about it, but you will come back. Even if it's four or five years down the line, okay, in four or five years' time, my era of pilot is going to be gone. We, we are the guys that are at the age of 60 are definitely retiring. We, we're going to be out of the loop now. So... That will solve the immediate problem as far as trimming the numbers of pilots. But one day when this comes back, as long as you keep your licenses valid, keep improving your qualifications, study for the ATP, try and keep yourself as current as is feasibly possible. I know sometimes it's not really that feasible, but the, the plan should be that when you get through this, that you're in the right place at the right time. And everything, in, everything in life is about that, eh? Being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. We, we will get through this. There's no, no doubt about it. I, I know it seems a bit tough at the moment, but we will get through it. It's great to shed some perspective there um, for all of us. And also good advice. You know, I'm, I, th I find, think I'm in a fortunate position where, you know, I don't have all these big commitments, but definitely cutting down on costs has been a big one and, and keeping busy. You know, for Paul and I, this podcast and the website, it's all been, you know, a matter of keeping busy and educating and, uh, and just spreading that positive message. Um, but I think this is a great, great note to end off on. Um, I don't know if you okay. want to add anything there, Paul or Walter. Actually, I want to come back to that, that story about the painting. Yes, the Wings of Africa. Yes, the Wings of Africa. So the, the, the painting was of Mike von Ginkel's glider. So th this painting uh, I, I gave away to Mike von Ginkel to, uh, you know, to obviously secure my, first, uh, <laughs> to secure my first flying job. Anyway, th th there's a bit of a story behind this one. A couple of weeks ago, 
in yeah. Avcom, one of the, uh, the, uh, the, the posts was about a painting um, that used to hang in the Baraguanath clubhouse, the, the, uh, the, the flying club of Baraguanath. And uh, anyway, it, 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 was a, it was a painting that I recognized uh, from my days when I was there years and years ago. Anyway, I kind of gave the story about this particular painting, but then I also mentioned, I said, oh, you know, it, it reminds me of another painting that actually got me my very first flying dog. So I put this on, on, on Avcom, and uh, a day later, I get a private message from a person calling themselves Aeronaut. So Aeronaut sends me a private message and says, listen, I've got your painting. And I said, no. Anyway, so I, I got hold of Aeronaut. It, it turned out to be somebody that I actually know from Safair days. And um, she told me a very interesting story because she, uh, her name's Tracy Robb. And Tracy had become very good friends with Mike Van Ginkel over the years because Tracy was a balloon pilot and Mike Van Ginkel's wife, Jeanette, was a balloon pilot as well. And they'd become very close family friends. And anyway, when Mike and Jeanette died, Mike's kids actually uh, said to Tracy, listen, they're basically going to burn everything in the house. Nobody wanted anything. If you want something, come and get it. And Tracy arrived there just before um, Jean and Andre put the painting onto the bloody fire. <laughs> and uh, Tracy rescued this painting and never knowing the history of this bloody painting. Anyway, she'd had it for a couple of years. So she, once she read my post on AFCOM, she actually got hold of me and said, listen, I've got your painting and I want to give it back to you. So I actually phoned her. We had a long chat and she said that, that painting had been hanging in her house for a number of years by that stage. And she said she always felt that that painting belonged to somebody else. And she said that when she saw my post on AFCOM, she knew it belonged to. And, what are the uh, chances? Yeah, what are the chances? So uh, as soon as we're out of COVID, I was out of the lockdown, I'll, I'll, I'll take a a trip up to Joburg and go and fetch the painting. And it's, isn't it amazing? That's, I mean, that painting that started my career is going to be back at the end of my career. Have you decided where you're going to hang that painting? Yes, that's good. That, that painting is going to be in the entrance hall of Flight Training College. Fantastic. Great stuff. What a story that is, eh? Oh, incredible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and a conversation piece in itself. Absolutely. That's, that's actually why I wanted that. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be a conversation piece. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Walter, it's been fantastic chatting to you, and I think uh, you're a great number one candidate for our uh, podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your time, and thank you for all the info that you've given us, all the advice, and just sharing personal stories. It's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. I think it's a great initiative that you guys have got, and uh, yeah, keep it up. I think there's a lot of guys out there that have got fantastic stories to tell. And, uh, you know, even for people that aren't in aviation, I think there's so many stories that uh, the guys in aviation can tell that can really give life lessons on uh, what it's like to sort of go through this adventure called life. But uh, a great initiative to keep it up, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Startup to Shutdown, the podcast with Rhett and Paul. To listen to more episodes or to subscribe, go to iTunes, IONA FM or Google Podcasts. Keep the blue side up and stay the course. Until next time, bye-bye.